Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. My guest today brings two words to my mind, courage and resilience. Our topic today is healing through laughter, and my guest is Linda Richmond, humorous, certified bereavement counselor and author of the best-selling book, I'd Rather Laugh, How to Be Happy Even When Life Has Other Plans for You. Linda is the bereaved mother of Jordan and the mother-in-law of comedian Mike Myers. She has told her uplifting story on Oprah 2020 and the Today Show. I first saw Linda at Canyon Ranch in Tucson, Arizona. She got us all laughing by showing her son-in-law, Mike Myers, doing his skit, The Coffee Talk Lady, based on Linda's life, or Linda's a person, I guess we would say. Very funny and a wonderful tribute to your mother, to his mother-in-law. Again, our topic today is healing through laughter, and my guest today is Linda Richmond. Linda, welcome to Healing the Grieving Heart. Thank you very much for the invite. I loved your book, and hearing you at Canyon Ranch, you have, you've had quite a life. Um, let's give our audience a rundown. Uh, I don't know whether you want to start now or early or wherever you want to begin. Um, starting with the losses in my life? Well, the losses or just your life. Yeah. Well, my life has been interesting. It's an interesting life. It's a life where I'm, I seem to always been, be swimming upstream. Um, every time things go well, it's somebody dies. Um, and it started with the death of my father when I was eight years old, and I wasn't told of his death for six years. So I didn't know what the heck was going on, and I wasn't allowed to speak of it. And um, So you never went to the funeral? You never knew anything about it? Uh, no, I didn't know he was dead until I was 14 years old. Amazing. Isn't it amazing? Yeah, really. Shocking. And I think that's where my sense of humor started because everything seemed so crazy that I just started laughing at the absurdity of my own life, which was a really good um, breaking ground for me to get ready for what was about to happen, which was when I was 19, I got married. Mm-hmm. And, and you uh, lived in Queens? Is I that lived right? in Queens, New York. Uh-huh. Very middle-class existence. I was going to have this wonderful little life with a... A little house with a picket fence and just go through life enjoying and, you know, there would be a moment or two of maybe heartbreak and, but that would be it. Yeah, but that was the life he planned. Yeah, but, you know, man plans, God laughs. Right. And he had such a good time laughing at me because, um, when I gave birth to my son, my aunt and uncle who raised me after my my father died and my mother wound up in mental hospitals for the rest of her life, um, my aunt and uncle who raised me both died when I was pregnant with my son and they were in their 40s. And um, Were they killed or they had... No, they were illness? in their early 40s. My aunt died of cancer and my uncle went to a basketball game to have a good time and he died. We always say that our family can't take good times. <laughs> and um, and then I developed, after I gave birth to my second child, I developed agoraphobia, which is the fear of leaving the house. And I didn't leave the house for the next 11 years. Yeah, I found that amazing. For 11 years that you could actually not leave the house. You know, in... That people in, would, 
you know, work, do things for you so you wouldn't have to. I actually had a very social life during those years because it was, um, at the time I lived in an apartment building with all young families and they'd all come in, drop off their kids and then come back and we'd have coffee and we'd talk and we had parties Friday night, Saturday night. We played cards, anything that I could do in my apartment. It was just leaving the apartment that I couldn't do. And this was 1964 through 1975, and nobody knew what was wrong with me, including me. That's amazing. You know, I think this is such a great story, particularly since we're doing it on the Internet, because there may be people out there right now who are listening to this who have it and don't know it. Um, you know what? If they have it in the, this age, this time and, and age, they know it. They know it. Okay. Yeah. Tell us how you found out. You were reading Red Book, right? I was reading Red Book magazine. There was a little article which said if you have the following symptoms, you probably are agoraphobic, and I'd never heard the word before. Yeah, what were the symptoms? The symptoms were if I went outside, I had one panic attack after the other, felt like I couldn't breathe. My hands literally became numb. Um, I used to feel like I was having a stroke. Not that I know what having a stroke is like, but that's what uh-huh. I imagined it to be. And I thought I would die. So I just stopped going out. And if I was home, I didn't have these reactions. So I stayed home. But there's so much information now and medication, mm-hmm. you know. And when I read the article in Red Book and they said, if you would like to, you know, join our group, give us a call. And I called them. I called the hospital where the study was being done. And they said, if you can get to the hospital, we'd like to do an intake. Well, I hadn't been out of the house for 11 years. <laughs> right. How was I, I going to get to the hospital? Right. But I did devise a plan where I went to the hospital. It was, it was a lot of hard work getting there. Well, I, I remember reading that you put a, they put a blanket over your head. Exactly. I put a blanket over my head, went to the garage in my apartment building. My girlfriend drove me to the hospital. I made her park um, in a place where I could see her. I mean, I was really in a panic state. Right. And they did a seven-hour intake, and I went home with the blanket over my head and, uh, you know, just waited for them to call. And three weeks later, they called, and they said, you are indeed agoraphobic, which made me the happiest person in the world. I couldn't have been more thrilled because it had a name. Right. And then I and, be- and it could be cured. And it, it was a- well, they didn't know then if it could be cured or not. Ah. They weren't. They didn't know what the heck was this was all about. But I joined this group, and half of the group was put on a medication, and half on a placebo. And they said if you were taking the medication, there was a possibility you would get nauseous and dizzy and get diarrhea. And of course, I got all those things. Right. And I called the hospital, and they said, well, take this next pill, which is an antidote to the other pill, Uh which I did. And I started feeling better, and I started getting stronger. And 10 weeks later, I was cured, literally Uh cured. Oh, my goodness. And a year later, I found out I had been on the placebo, (laughs) which meant it's all about the mind. Right. It's all about what you tell yourself. Uh-huh. I thought a pill was doing it for me when, in fact, I was doing it for me. Wow. And then, of course, as the years progressed, life went on. And I was, and your husband was a gambler. My right? husband was a gambler, which caused a lot of problems. Did he do the horses or what? Or anything? Oh, horses, football, cockroaches, ants. <laughs> it doesn't matter when you're a gambler. And 
after a 30-year marriage, I finally got divorced. And a year after the divorce, my son was killed in a head-on collision. And that's when that part of my life ended. And, you know, I always say I'm only 15 now because it's 15 years since my son died. Mm -hmm. And I had to create a whole new way of living and a whole new way of thinking and a whole new way of being. Because when that happens, you change. Mm -hmm. There's no more norm. You know, when the 9-11, when 9-11 happened, everybody said that there was a new normal. Well, it is a new normal. Mm -hmm. It's a different kind of life. A different, a whole different life for you since he was killed. Oh, totally. Totally. Everything that happened to me, I always say it's before Jordan died. Mm -hmm. And everything that's happened since is after Jordan died. That's so amazing because, in my mind, because of all the things that had happened to you before uh, and all that you'd had to cope with, this was still a huge seminal event that, that made those um, uh, huge changes in your life. Well, I always say that I had a relationship with my son nine months before he was introduced to the world. So I had this very special relationship with him. Uh, how so? Are you... I was pregnant with him. Uh-huh. So you started that relationship? I started that relationship nine months before he arrived on this planet. And it is different. Right. It's different to lose a child than to lose... Uh, first of all, it's not natural to lose a child. It's not right. the order of nature. You're not supposed to bury a child. You know, so when you lose a parent, it's expected. Right. But when you use, lose a, a child, and he was 29... So he wasn't a baby. He was a full-formed person who, you know, was a was the fabric of my life. And he was a playwright. He was a playwright. He was very talented. He was very smart. He was very, very funny. And um, I had to live, learn to live in a world without him. Uh, I wondered, one thing I did want to um, say uh, I've got an email here where um, the email says, Dr. Horsley, I saw you're going to have Linda Richmond on the show. I saw her on Oprah and read her book, and I've always wanted to ask her, when did you first know you were funny? Susan from Cody, Wyoming. Um, I don't know if I ever knew I was funny um, until somebody pointed it out to me. I had met somebody about 10 years ago, and it turned out we went to kindergarten together. Uh -huh. And she said to me, oh, my God, I remember you so well. You always made me laugh. And I said, oh, my God, I must have had it then. <laughs> so it <was laughs> Whatever <the> it is. <laughs> right, right. Well, tell, tell us about how, what's happened with your humor since Jordan's been killed. Has, has that made a change? Oh, my goodness, yes. Um, first of all, I had to make a decision if I wanted to live after Jordan died. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we left out, which is really important, is that I have a daughter, Robin. Right. Yeah. Who is, you know, the great love of my life. And she's very private about her emotions. And one day I was just sitting with her and holding her around, and I saw her tears coming down my arm, but I didn't hear any sound. And I thought, my God, we can't live like this. This is not the way that I choose to live my life. So I didn't want to see her in, in pain. Mm -hmm. So I started telling her really bad jokes. 
and I started to hear a little giggle come out of her. And I figured, you know what, if there's a giggle there, then we have some hope. You know, maybe we'll get to the laughter again. And it's a, it's a, it's really a journey. You, I don't like to call it, I was going to use the word struggle and I stopped myself because I don't think of it as a struggle. It was a journey for me, a journey of finding the silliness in life and the absurdity of life and knowing without doubt that my son had died. I never want to take away the, the reality or the facts mm-hmm. that indeed my child died, he died in a car crash and it's awful, but I choose to live, and now that I'm going to live, I'm going to live a rich, full life. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I did was I created a scholarship in his name at the Williamstown Theater Festival in Williamstown, Massachusetts. He had gone there for a summer program, uh-huh. and he loved it. He had the best time ever. And what I did is I created a scholarship fund, which now has a ton of money in it. We started out with $500. Ah. And now it has several hundred thousand dollars in there. So each year I'm able to send five or six kids to Williamstown for the summer, kids who are financially in need, and they go in memory of Jordan. And one of the things that they're obligated, the only thing they're obligated to do is at some point during the summer, they have to go buy a beer and make a toast to him. <laughs> That's their obligation. That's great. How would people find out about that? Do you have something on the Internet? or it's If you go to Williamstown Theater Festival, they have all the information on there. That's great. Wonderful. Well, we've got another email here um, from a Mary from Boston, Mass. She said, I saw that your topic was going to be healing through laughter. My son died last November, and I have laughed a few times, but I mostly feel like I'm in a big black hole. Does Linda have any suggestions? Well, first of all, I remember the first time I really had a good belly laugh after my son died. Mm-hmm. I went to bed for two days after that. I felt so guilty for laughing. I said, how dare I laugh? It's almost how dare I live. Ah, there, that's a good point. The yes. laughter and living and, and really feeling full again. Exactly. Yeah. So the first thing that this lady, and by the way, my heart goes out to her because, first of all, it's very raw if he just died in November. Right. Um, I, I believe that the first year is a year of a roller coaster ride. You just have emotions that you just don't know what to do with. They come and go at will. And you just have to hang on tight. And also time helps. Time does heal. Mm-hmm. You never get over the loss of a child. What you do is you integrate it into your life. And if she has a good laugh, the most important thing is not to feel guilty and know that that deep hole in her heart will be filled up eventually. So, Mary, we're giving you permission to laugh here. Please do. The laughter maven, right? That's right. (laughs) And you also, you might want to get Linda's book. Everyone, I would highly recommend it, that I'd rather laugh because uh, it really embraces some of the things you've been saying right now. You really need to do that. So were you a public person? I don't know what the, um, you know, events surrounding coffee talk and your son's death. And were you a public person then? or Never. Never. I was I was a nice woman who 
did her work. I owned a casting company that made television commercials. Now, how did um, you get into that? The- um, I worked for somebody who did the same thing and finally went out on my own um, after I had worked there for about four years. And um, it was something that I loved doing. And it was really doing off-camera television interviewing. Mm-hmm. But I was never on camera. So I'm not used to being a public person. And even now, I don't think of myself as a public person. And I'd love to tell the story that after I wrote my book, I was on Oprah and Rosie and right. and every every show, the Today Show, Good Morning America, the early show. I mean, I was, every time you turned on the TV, I was there. Now, was that promotion by your, that was uh, Double promotion. Day, your book, your book publisher? Right, by Warner Books. Oh, Warner Books. Uh-huh. And... um I figured I'm, now I'm just going to be recognized by everybody and mm-hmm. nothing. And one day I was in a pharmacy having a prescription filled and a woman was was staring at me and I went to myself. I said, oh, she knows who I am. This is so exciting. Maybe she'll ask for an autograph. You know, um, this is the first moment <laughs> of my life. Right. And finally she came over to me. She said, I just want to tell you how much I loved your book. And I said, thank you so much. That's so nice of you. And then she said to me, and I, too, had breast cancer. <laughs> and I said to her, I, I never had breast cancer. And she said, aren't you Linda Ellerby? <laughs> so there's, there's my fame. <laughs> That's my fame. Uh, that is a good one. Uh-huh. <laughs> the, the delight is that I'm never recognized, so I live a very private life. And where I live, I don't use my last name, my real last name. So the people in my apartment building have no idea, you know, who I am. Right. Of course, at Canyon Ranch, you're doing, uh, helping yes. a lot of people there doing uh, seminars for them, right? Yes, yes. That's that's my, that's the work that I do for my heart. It's work that I love. And I know there are a lot of people that go to Canyon Ranch, uh, which is a spa in uh, Tucson, and the one you're in right now is in... It's in the Berkshires, in, the in Berkshires. Lenox, Massachusetts. Yeah, and Canyon Ranch, I know, is a place where a lot of people go who have lost. Oh, yes. And uh, go for um, to take care of themselves, and it must be a, a wonderful place to do good work. It's, it's a place of healing. Yes. It's a wonderful place. I'm very fortunate to be invited here every year. Well, we have another email from an Elaine from Portland, Oregon, and she said, I saw that Linda Richmond was going to be on the show, and I wanted to say that I'm sorry to hear about her son uh, and to ask her if she was a public person before your son was killed. Do you think it's harder or easier for you to grieve when you have such a well-known son-in-law? I always wonder about this with people who are in the public eye. Well, you know what? My son-in-law is in the public eye. I wasn't. Mm-hmm. So it really had no no effect on me from that standpoint. So really, your book is more more what you brought you out into the public eye. Exactly. Before then, you know, my son-in-law's character was just a character. It wasn't a real person. Nobody knew who I was and knew what I looked like or anything. Right, right. Except that didn't you go on TV as that sometimes? Never. Coffee talk lady or... No, everybody thinks what I did. (laughs) You know, people have told me they loved me on Saturday Night Live. That's fascinating. I never was on. (laughs) That's interesting. Would you talk a little bit, I mean, about a sense of humor? I had a laugh in the book about your mother when you went. She said she never did anything, and then you went, and she was a bingo caller. Oh, sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, my mom was very special. My mother, um, 
you know, there's an old expression that my mother was a travel agent. She sent me on a guilt trip every day, <laughs> you know, and that was my mother, except it didn't work with me. Um, and my mother moved to Florida, and she lived in a hotel, in a senior citizen hotel. And she would call me and my sister and go, I have nothing to do here. I don't talk to anybody. Nobody talks to me. I just sit alone in the lobby with a book, and I'm just alone all the time. And one day I decided I'm going to surprise her, come down to Florida, not tell her, and just spend a couple of days with her. So I got down to Florida about 8 o'clock in the evening, and I went to the front desk at the hotel, and I said, Ann Richmond, please. And they said, oh, she's in the bingo hall. She's our bingo caller. I said, she's what? And they said, oh, yeah, she's our regular bingo caller every week. We have senior citizens coming from all the hotels, and your mother is the bingo caller. And I walked into this huge ballroom, and I knew that my mother wouldn't be able to see me from where I was. So I put my suitcase down and walked to the middle of the room as my mother is calling B9. <laughs> B9. N42. N42. And all of a sudden, with the microphone in her hand, she goes, Oh, my God, it's my daughter, and did she get fat? <laughs> and then when she finally came off the stage, I said, What are you doing with the bingo callings, because I, I did it as a favor. I never do it. And it turns out that she was the regular bingo caller. <laughs> she just wanted me and my sister to think she was just miserable. That is such a uh, great story. Well, why do you think your business took off after Jordan's death? Well, I think I was a workaholic. I ah. think that I put all my energies into work. Um in my book, if, if you recall, I told you that I I used to buy prosperity can um, incense to burn because I wanted to make money, and I burned these these prosperity um, incense candles day and night, and I thought, my God, they really work. And then when I started getting healthier, I realized I've been working 18-hour days. Of course, they're going to work. And so part of dealing with Jordan's death was being a workaholic. Yes, I became very, very busy. I want to talk a little bit about, you talk in your book, which, by the way, is a wonderful book, and I'd recommend everyone to to uh, get a copy of it. Um, you talk about um, giving meaning to life after your son Jordan died. Can you talk a little bit about that for our audience? Well, I think that my life had been really empty before then. All I ever concerned myself with was, did I have enough money to go to Bloomingdale's? Um, I did nothing for humanity other than cook and shop and take care of my family, which is very noble. But I could have done more. And when Jordan died, I decided to create the scholarship fund that I talked about. Mm-hmm. And, and why don't you mention that again, because some people may have just tuned in. Okay, it's a scholarship fund at the Williamstown Theater Festival. Um, it's called the Jordan Ruzan Scholarship Fund. And what it does is it sends underprivileged kids for a summer of learning about theater. It's got to be kids who are over 18 and who have shown a desire to go into the theater. It's a wonderful program. And I became involved with that very heavily. And um, I 
read all the the stories that the kids wrote me and and looked at all their financials very carefully to make sure that they were worthy of going and then I decided that wasn't enough and what I started doing is I started doing fundraising for cancer research and I found the more that I did for others the more I filled my own self up plus I was running a business Mm-hmm. And, and, and tell people what your business was. My business was I had a casting company that did television commercials. Now, are you still doing that or are you? Nope. I gave it up because I went to Canyon Ranch as a guest and I met this incredible man, Dr. Dan Baker, and he decided that I should be lecturing on my life and how I've dealt with the things that have happened in my life through laughter. And I started doing it for Canyon Ranch, and I sold my business, moved out to Tucson, and worked at the ranch, and had this whole new career where people were hiring me, hiring me to lecture all around the country, and I wrote my book, and then I just started giving of myself to organizations, here, let me help you, let me help you, let me help you, and, then and by helping them... I'm sorry. I was just saying, and then being on our show also is a great thing for you to do. Yes. Anything that I can do to help other people fills me up. And I get as much out of it as the people who are listening to me speak. Now, do you think, uh, had Jordan not died, do you think you would have uh, been doing all these things? No, I don't. I think that I would have gone on as um, a person who just didn't pay attention to life. I did not pay attention. There are a lot of us who are going through like ghosts, not paying attention to life, not looking at what's important. Uh, I used to think the most important thing, believe it or not, was keeping up with the Joneses, having the right look, going to the right salon, wearing the right shoe. I mean, I can't even believe that who that was is me. And do you feel like, I know uh, that people have talked about the fact that having their child die also uh, ended some of the fear in their life. I have no fear. None. There is nothing that can happen that can frighten me. Is it kind of the worst has happened? The worst has happened. And we're still around. And we're, we're still here, honey. We're That's still right. here. <laughs> <laughs> we're still here doing our thing. <laughs> I have very few fears. I mean, I used to be petrified of flying. I get on a plane now and I go, you know what? It's in God's hand and the pilot's hand. Mm-hmm. There's nothing I can do. And I just lie back and go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Whereas I used to be a real white knuckler traveler. You know, I was petrified. That can't scare me. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit? I know you were talking in the book about uh, your new age thing and your self-help groups and all that. Oh I thought that God. was pretty interesting. Oh, my God. <laughs> I've well, done a bit of that myself. <laughs> well, after Jordan died, I didn't know why he died, and I didn't know how to live, and I didn't know anything. So I started going, well, the first year he died, I went to 103 spiritual conferences, mostly on death and dying. And then I realized, wow, I know how to die, and I know about dying. I forgot to figure out the living part. So I got involved in a spiritual world where I used to go to psychics on a daily basis. And, you know, 
have them tell me whatever I wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I told you I burnt the incense. Right. I burned incense. I had stones. I carried stones. <laughs> I had good luck charms. I had books on spirituality. And they all helped, by the way. Right, exactly. You get a little bit from everything. You get a little bit, but you can't live on that lofty approach as I did, which is I blessed everybody. (laughs) I would bless people as I passed them in the street. Bless you. (laughs) Bless you, ma'am. Have a wonderful day. Bless you. If somebody did something awful to me, I'd go, bless you. Bless you. You know, you'll get yours. And then I realized I can't live in this kind of world. This is nice for me. And you find a norm. You know, you this, the pendulum swings from, you know, the craziness that I was doing to a normal place in your life. I'm still very spiritual, but I think I am spiritual to a normal point. You know, when somebody's a, a stinker, they'll be told they're a stinker. Right. You know, um, nobody's getting away with anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have an email here, a special email from Patricia Loader, who's the executive director of the Compassionate Friends, and she has written to you. Um, she said, Dear Linda, I am so pleased that you're taking the time from your schedule to share your grief experience with Dr. Horsley today. Reaching out and sharing your story in this forum, I'm sure will be a tremendous help to many people who are listening. I know you indicated in your book that you attended the Compassionate Friends and it wasn't for you. I'm sorry that you didn't find it helpful. As a bereavement counselor, you know there are many different ways to assist people on their grief journey. Programs such as Dr. Horsley's offered through the Internet, self-help groups, grief groups, counseling, and in general connecting with other individuals who have gone through a similar experience are all tremendous help. In our organization, we recommend that people attend at least three meetings before deciding if our organization is appropriate for him or her. Attending a meeting for the first time can be emotionally draining and can leave people feeling overwhelmed when speaking of children's death with strangers. By attending additional meetings, those strangers become friends and turn into a network of care and support. Again, I thank you for being here today and wish you all the best in your endeavors. Warmly, Pat Loader, Executive Director of the Compassionate Friends. Well, that's lovely, and she's right. I only went to one meeting, and had I gone for a couple of more, I probably would have gotten a different experience. But I was—I went seven weeks after my son died, right, and I was early. so raw. Yes. And when people were talking about their children, and I wrote about this in my book, I wanted to scream at them, I don't care about your children. My son died. Right, exactly. And you were talking about how you told everybody on the street that first year? Oh, yeah. I would stop people and tell them, strangers, hi, how are you? My son just died. And they would run. I mean, (laughs) I think most people moved out of Queens because of this crazy lady who would be walking up and down the street. But it was an an impulse that I... I remember telling people in grocery lines that. Oh, I did that, too. stuck there with you. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They have to leave the line. Or, God forbid, somebody would go, hi, how are you? Well, my son just died. <laughs> I thought, oh, dear. <laughs> I went to uh, the pharmacist and I said, have you got any pills for stress? My son just died. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, I used that so much. I mean, not that I used it. It just kind of blurted out if I wanted something to deliver to my house. Because right. in New York, you know, they deliver everything. I go, can you deliver that? And they go, not till two. And I went, but my son just died. <laughs> And they go, oh, uh, okay, we'll bring it over now. 
and it was exactly. like it was crazy. It was crazy, but you're supposed to be crazy. Yeah. Oh, you are. It's insane. okay to be crazy. Yeah. My my daughters, I have three daughters, and they always had the joke about if you want to get an A in school, you write the Scott paper. You know, oh, right. brothers. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was good for every class, for it, you know, every exactly. teacher. They could do it once. Exactly. Plan on an A. <laughs> well, it was like when I was growing up, and my father was was dead, and when I was fourteen, I found out he was dead. Man, did I use that? I figured I'd been used. So every note from me being absent was, please forgive Linda for being absent, but she has to go to the cemetery to visit her father today. <laughs> well, what teacher is going to be angry with you? And my mother never wrote those letters. I did. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you sort of do. I also loved when you were talking about the book about that you were so fascinated with the Rose Kennedy story. Oh, I love that. I just thought Rose Kennedy was it. I mean, she lost four children, and she seemed fine and dandy. And I try to emulate her, which is really hard for a Jewish girl from Queens to emulate, you know, Rose Kennedy. But I tried to. I tried not to cry in public, and I tried to be ladylike. It so didn't work. It, I was such a failure at being Rose Kennedy. <laughs> you didn't get, did you get a big hat? I did, I tried everything, Gloria, <laughs> everything. I wanted to look the part. And then years later I met Maria Shriver and I told her the story. I said, I don't know how your grandmother did it. And she went, I don't know either. She said, I would have killed myself. <laughs> you know, so there it went. Right. That's my Rose Kennedy story. I can't be Rose Kennedy. Well, I thought we could give uh, Wayne Dreyer a little uh, plug for his book because I was interested that you've enjoyed that book so much. Oh, I love his book. In fact, I have the same book. Somebody gave it to me. Can you give us the name of it? It's called You'll See It When You Believe It. And when I, you know, in the Jewish religion, you sit shiva for a week. Right. And I sat shiva for two weeks, of course, because... Nothing is ever enough for me, I guess. Um, and one of my friends came and gave me Wayne Dyer's book at that time. And this is 15 years ago. And Wayne Dyer at that time was known for psychobabble. And you know? pulling your own strings. I remember yeah, that one. That, that was one of my like first. And I just thought, I don't want this. This is nonsense. And one night, I had nothing to read. And I'm a voracious reader. So I picked up the book. Figuring I'm, this is the worst book that I'll ever read in my life, but at least I'll have something to read. And the man really helped me change my life. That book, I want you to know I have the original book. Every page is highlighted because at different times I read different things that are important to me. Uh-huh. And I had the opportunity to speak to him on the phone. We both turned out to have the same agent. Ah. literary agent and I asked him if I could send him that book and he would autograph it and I've never asked anybody for their autograph (laughs) and he did and he said what a mess this book is and I said well you know that it's been loved that's for sure but it, it just it just put a lot of things in perspective in a very spiritual way uh-huh. And you were ready for it. I was ready. It's time to go to break, and uh, please stay tuned for more comments and advice from our guest, Linda Richmond, bereaved mother of Jordan, humorous, certified bereavement counselor, and author of the best-selling book, I'd Rather Laugh, How to Be Happy Even When Life Has Other Plans from You, and to hear about next week's uh, special topic and guest. And, Linda, when we come back from our break, um, I'd like to know if there are any areas that you feel that we've missed or any comments that you'd like to make before we end the show. Okay. 
The Compassionate Friends Self-Help Bereavement Support Organization has nearly 600 chapters in the United States offering friendship, understanding, and hope to families that have experienced the death of a child, no matter the age or cause. If your family has suffered this tragic loss, there is no reason for you to walk this difficult journey alone. Many who have had a child die have learned how helpful it is to be able to talk or just listen in a group setting with those who truly understand the pain of losing a child. To locate a chapter near you or to receive a free comprehensive bereavement packet, including a copy of the Compassionate Friends National Magazine, We Need Not Walk Alone, call toll-free 877-969-0010. You are also invited to visit the TCF National website at CompassionateFriends.org. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Are you tired of being tired? Are you sick of sitting around while life passes you by? You can get back on track by tuning in to Voice America Health and Wellness every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time for Attracting Abundance, the Energy of Success with Carol Look. Attracting Abundance is the program that empowers you to finally break through your limiting beliefs and blocks and shows you how to succeed in all areas of your life, from improved financial abundance, health and weight problems, as well as your relationships. Don't wait another week to be joyful. Listen to Attracting Abundance, the Energy of Success with Carol Look, this Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, right here on Voice America Health and Wellness. Women, do you feel that you're too old to be active, too old to be beautiful, too old to have fun, or too old to be fabulous? Well, if that's what you think, then there's good news for you. You're wrong. Tune in to Voice America every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Aging Outside the Box. Fabulous Women Over 50 with Shirley Mitchell. Aging Outside the Box is a fabulous, fun program that gives you every reason to feel greater than you ever have. Host Shirley Mitchell and O.E. Cruiser Small will cover phenomenal topics such as women's issues, health, diet, exercise, nutrition, faith, travel, and many other concerns for women of all ages. Feel young, feel smart, and feel fabulous by tuning in to Aging Outside the Box. Fabulous Women Over 50 with Shirley Mitchell every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on voiceamerica.com. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. We now rejoin Dr. Gloria on Healing the Grieving Heart, a show of hope and renewal for those who suffered the loss of a child. Welcome back to Healing the Grieving Heart. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley. My guest today is Linda Richmond, humorous, certified bereavement counselor and author of the best-selling book, I'd Rather Laugh. How to be happy even when life has other plans for you. Linda's a brief mother of Jordan and the mother-in-law of uh, comedian Mike Myers and also the mother of Robin. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Robin, we're going to get you in there. Yeah. <laughs> Linda, before break, I ask you, uh, do you have any uh, things that you think we've missed? I think that one of the things that's really important, and it goes back to the first email that you that you received, is that when you get those bad days, give in to them. Um, and we all get them, and especially after a death that's so new, like that lady that uh, mm-hmm. wrote in whose son died in November. The first year is a very difficult time. And it's the first of everything, the first birthday that you're going to miss with that child, the first Christmas, the first of everything. 
So put aside a day when you just know, you know what, today is a day I'm just going to stay in bed, eat potato chips, watch old movies, and just feel cruddy. And then the next day, get up, get dressed, get out, and start over again. It's a year of starts and stops. And you know what? Be kind to yourself. It's really important. Mm -hmm. And also know that there is nothing so horrible in this world that one day you won't laugh again. You will. Even if you don't want to, you will. (laughs) Well, if you think about the absurdity of it, uh, there are so many things to laugh about. And uh, sometimes other people don't understand why we laugh either. It doesn't matter. I think the most important thing is learn to laugh at yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, if you can laugh at yourself, you can laugh at anything. Absolutely. You can do that. Now, what about the second and third year, and it's been 15 years for you, um, and you say you've made, you know, a lot of changes in your life. How was it the second and third? Do you remember? How how long did it take you to really feel like you were getting it together again? Well, to be honest with you, and I, I plan on doing that, is the second year was actually worse than the first. Mm-hmm. And I think because the first year there's a lot of numbness that is involved. Um, and the second year, the numbness goes away. And you're left with the reality that the child that you gave birth to is no longer here. And I found the second year was a year where, where I really had to work very hard to keep my sense of humor and keep my wits about me. And then the third year, it starts dimming. The pain starts dimming. And once the pain starts dimming, you start emerging as a person again. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't. I know that, um, you know, your son-in-law is a very public person. Um, has he had any influence in all this with you, Mike Myers? Well, I have a funny family. Or? I have a funny family. That's the best part. Mm-hmm. Everybody is funny. I mean, the year after my son died, Mike's father died of Alzheimer's. And if we didn't laugh at everything, at the, how crazy this all was, we would probably all be in a nut house. Mm-hmm. So, so you all laughed together. How did how did you all get in the theater? I mean, uh, that's just all coincidental that it's, Robin married somebody in the theater and that you were in the casting business and your well, son I was actually, playwright. And I, I actually was in advertising. Okay. Um, my son was a playwright. My daughter was a theater major. And she met Mike, who was an actor. So it just seemed to work out that way. It's just uh, just the family. It's who you hang out with, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. What right. neighborhood you hang out with. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what about giving meaning to life? You were talking about that in your book. You know, what would you suggest to people about their life? Do something for somebody else. Do something for others. It's... Look what's going on in New Orleans now. Go do something to help those people. It will only help you. Mm-hmm. So get out there and do something. Go do us. something. Get outside of yourself. It's not always about you. Mm-hmm. And and maybe uh, the first year it can be about you, and maybe even the second after your child. Yeah, right? and it should be. But then you you do need to. Start. Then you got to start living again and moving up. Yeah. Well, Linda, I want to thank you for being on the show. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. 
you can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com. 